0: Hey there, folks. Rob Hessler here with another episode of Art on the Air, my weekly Savannah Morning News Special. Thanks for tuning in. As always, have a really phenomenal interview lined up for you. I spoke with Noel W. Anderson, along with Aaron Dunn, Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art over at the Telfair Museums, about Noel's current exhibition, Heavy is the Crown, over at the Jepson Center. Guys, I got to tell you, this was a phenomenal interview. Noel was incredible. His exhibition is just a really great exhibition. And big shout out to Aaron for giving me a personalized tour of the space so that we could have a really in-depth and knowledgeable conversation about the show that's up there. And Noel was so gracious with his time. We went through many of the pieces in the show, and he went into real detail about them and his process and everything like that, and it was just a really great conversation. Um, Talked to him via Zoom from his home in Brooklyn, New York, and it was a great conversation. I just know you're really going to be blown away by it, and you're really going to want to see the exhibition over at the Jepson Center, or if you already have seen the exhibition, this is certainly going to add a new dimension to it for you. So, can't wait to share this one with you. Wanted to mention, as always, you can catch past episodes of Art on the Air and my corresponding Art Off the Air column, as well as all of the writing that I do for the Savannah Morning News at savannahnow.com in the entertainment section. Last week, had a couple of cool pieces come out. I spoke with Tatiana von Tauber for the Art Off the Air column, and she was really great talking about her new exhibition space that she just recently opened, her new gallery space. So check that one out. And I also, also wrote a piece about Natasha Gaskill a pop-up pastry chef, she's going to be opening up a space likely next year as well, who was really fun to talk to. She's um, the sort of mastermind behind A Squad Donuts, and she does ice cream pop-ups and bread pop-ups and all this really great stuff around town. So those were really fun pieces to do. And again, you can find them at SamanthaNow.com in the entertainment section. But let's get to this week's extra special interview with Noel W. Anderson and a little side guest. Appearance by Aaron Dunn conducted via Zoom, all about Knoll's current exhibition over at the Jepson Center. Heavy is the crown. Enjoy. Rob Hessler here with Art on the Air Field Notes. I am speaking by Zoom with Aaron Dunn, curator of contemporary and modern art over at the Jepson Center and Telfair Museums, and I'm Very happy to be joined by Noel Anderson, an artist whose exhibition Heavy as the Crown is currently on view over at the Jepson Center. Noel, first of all, thank you so much for joining us here. And I want to dive right into the exhibition. I had a chance to take a look at it, and it's phenomenal. And I encourage folks to, to check it out in person. It really needs to be seen in person. And it's basically broken up into three different sections, and although it's not the beginning of the exhibition, there is one thing that kind of, it's sort of a disquieting piece that I think sort of acts as the introduction, I think, for many to the exhibition, and that is a plush doll, self-portrait that you have Mm -hmm. hanging on the wall kind of right when you enter into the exhibition. Talk a little bit about that because from what I understand, that sort of followed you through a number of different exhibitions, and I'm really curious as to what you've got to say about that.
1: Well, first of all, let me say thank you for having me or <laughs> well, appreciate, the, appreciate the platform to have a, an accessible conversation. Uh, yeah, I think the doll in origin is German in a weird way uh, because I purchased it from a seller in Germany and I had to have it when I saw it, right? And the description of the doll is it's about 18 inches tall. It's very comic in nature, big, it's, it's a brown skinned doll short cropped hair, big, big <clears throat> bulging eyes and big lips. Um, and I thought, well, wh- wh- first of all, what a charged image. Because uh-huh. it, it has everything to do it all. It, it, it encapsulates those stereotypes uh, put upon black peoples from without, right? But I also enjoy the doll because the way it hangs in the show, um, is and it hung in a show in Cincinnati, the Contempor- Contemporary Arts Center, the show with Black Origin moment. Uh, it hangs in the show on a nail or a hook. And when it hangs, it kind of has open arms and a slouched head. Now, depending on how I hang it, if I hang it higher, if I hang it low, it depends on how I would hope the, the, the viewer reads it, right? Like when it when it has, when it's hung up high and it's bowed head and arms open, it is asking for a hug in a sense, but it's also a kind of judgment. Mm-hmm. Right, It's looking down on you with a, a weird, sinister grim, right? Um, and if I hang it from midsection, right, like eye level, then it becomes uh, no longer a kind of eye in the sky that's watching us all. That's like Gatsby. Uh, mm. It becomes more like uh, a child in embarrassment. That that shamed child who got caught with his hand in the cookie jar once again and is all it's doing is bowing his head and hoping for a hug. So I thought that the contradiction within that one object kind of a, explores the contradiction with one within myself and two with, within, within all the work that I make, that things are both happy and sad, pleasure and pain up and down. But I hope that the exhibition itself is a space where things become gray, no longer black and white, but muddled.
0: Well, and it, I definitely feel like that is the case. And we're going to talk about a lot of that because I think that you juxtapose images that definitely convey that message. It's funny because Aaron and I was, were standing in front of it. And she was like, well, this piece can be this. And I was like, oh yeah, it's definitely that. And then she was said, or it could be this. And I was like, oh yeah, it's also definitely that. And then she was like, or it could be this. And I was like, it's definitely also that. And she went through that, that feeling of shame, Mm -hmm. The character almost like proselytizing from standing up above you and then the downcast sort of eyes. And then also, like you said, like almost sympathetic. The figure is almost sympathetic, like you, as you mentioned, like wanting, looking for a hug the way that its arms are positioned.
1: That's interesting. Let's go there, because that sense of shame slash sympathy really plays. Now that I think about it, plays in an interesting way against the other images that are in the show. Right, the charged images of uh, black subjugation or or, or black trauma and terror, Um, which is interesting because when I think about the the work that my therapist and I are doing every Friday, nine in the morning, (laughs) um, every day, every (laughs) Friday we do that legwork, I'm starting to realize that the images that inform my very being, which are some of those images in that space, have inter- I have internalized those feelings that the images have created, which are both shame and and a kind of plea for uh, for help. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh,
0: uh-huh.
1: It, it's interesting that those images. Now that I'm thinking about it, those images really have affected me since I saw them when I was a boy. And those images are not limited to those ones the the ones in the show, but you know they're all the time, always, everywhere. And every day you wake up, you have to contend with them, and that's everybody, I think. You know.
0: Well, I think, and in particular, though, I mean, I think that the images that you're referencing here are. Well, I mean, I I guess that is everybody, and we do all have that. But I think that there, you know, I'm I'm, I'm in a very privileged position here as the as the white guy in the interview here, and I think that it's, um, you know, it's certainly, these images are have a different level of sort of charge and impact on you than than, um, you know, the images that I see culturally, which are generally designed to sort of fit my Mm -hmm. perspective, Um, Mm -hmm. whereas I think that, um, you know, that's certainly not true, um, you know, of the black experience. So I'm I'm curious, though, because you mentioned, um, you know, and I want to, we're going to talk about some specific pieces, but where does that come from? Cause you mentioned your therapist and, and I mean, and I go to therapy as well. So I just want to let those people out there, no shame in that, you know, I think that that's um, weekly, you know, for me as well. Um, and uh, you know, you mentioned sort of, and it's a huge part of your work is, is walking that kind of line between, I don't want to say conflicting ideas, because I actually sort of feel like as humans, we all possess all of these things right. like, on a daily right. basis. Yep. Where did that kind of first starting of, uh, start to evolve for you? Like, because, I mean, it certainly would be easy to take these really powerful images and just say, boom, and people can react to them. And they are, they are powerful. They are the kind of thing that people will just naturally react to. Like what made you want to go to that gray place? Like
1: what made you oh. want to explore that? Fear, 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 um, fear, and, and fear and understanding. So the fear of waking up every day and going into a world uh, that has agents that don't want you in this world, mm. right? By which I mean possibly the police or other kind of higher forces. Um, I could either slink back into myself and withdraw and say, I'm not going to engage, or I could say, okay, well, my platform is this studio and possibly uh, theaters, uh, stages in which to speak. These, these are my platforms. How can I use those platforms effectively to engage this fear, right? Because when I go jogging in the Bronx, I live here in Harlem. When I go jogging in the Bronx, you know, the police watch me mm. I, and I'm dressed in the, the, the campiest, a running outfit, you know, neon backpack, Uh, you know, this kind of, I'm looking like a weekend dad over here or something. um, still, you know, you understand, but still, uh, you know, I go to, to the local, uh, what do you call it? Running store and get all that rigmarole that the aesthetics that proves that I supposedly am a serious runner, but even in dressed in that costume, they, they bypass that, right. They circumvent that and what they see is the race. So I had to grapple with that fear, and I'm trying to grapple with the fear by way of the images. Um, but also, I think it it comes from, and now that I can think about it, it comes from this moment in the movie. Uh, uh, it comes from it comes from the moment in the movie, the Spike Lee movie, Malcolm X, which I remember seeing, and what was that like ninety two or something on mm-hmm. the big screen? It was it was a it was a big moment for us as children. Um, And there was a specific scene in the movie where Denzel Washington playing Malcolm X now he is incarcerated, but he is now reformed as a Muslim and he goes to the chapel for service and he reads by which I mean he critiques or corrects the white reverend or preachers understanding of a simple complexion of his main leader, by which I mean Jesus. And he uses the, the Bible itself and exposes, and I don't remember the section, but he suggests in the section, you know, he reads it and says, No, Jesus' skin was of brass and hair was of wool. And, and in understanding that, I said, Oh, sh-. So this entire time, the image that I've been sold is one thing, but the book itself, the words, the language that we use to define ourselves, uh, itself has gone around that logic and undercut the logic that tries to keep me down. You see what I'm saying? I 100%
0: see what you're saying. In fact, Aaron and I were having a discussion about this, about a, we're getting off a bit on the topic, but uh, we were were having a discussion about this, that there's a museum in town called the Beach Institute. And back in, uh, I think it was about 2017, there was a lecture there about many of the the protests that were happening at that time, um, you know, and there were, they were showing images of protests in response to the murder of Michael Brown and Mm -hmm. who's depicted in one of your pieces in the show and the lecture during the lecture, there was uh, and I, and I feel really bad because this, this poor um, I think, you know, this poor guy who was giving the lecture at this uh, and this is a predominantly black museum, but he, um, he was a, a white man giving this lecture and he was showing pictures of the protests in mm-hmm. response to the murder. And it was all like fire and riots and right. all this stuff. And at the end of his lecture, a man, a very, an elderly black man stood up and said, well, how come all of the pictures you're showing of the yep. protests are all riots when the vast majority of the protests were peaceful protests? And I and that was a really powerful moment because it is the image that we connect with those things really matters. It contextualizes like what we think about the response to the killing of someone like Michael Brown versus what the actual response was, which is totally peaceful. I mean, we have protests here in Savannah when those when there have been killing of of innocent people of color and there's never violence ever it's never violence um so it's interesting yeah i mean i i hear what you're saying there's like what we think it is based on what is portrayed to us in the media versus what actually is when you do the real research is you know it's, it's it's can be stark at times
1: it really can we think about for me it's on a very basic level of Asking the question, okay, well, this is what we see. By which I mean, you know, you you see an image on screen or something. You say, but what's behind the thing? Mm-hmm. What's behind the image? Because the image itself is also an object, and objects are spatial. And because things are spatial, that means you can get behind it on a very literal, basic level. You know. Yeah. Um. So if we if we could like if I thought to I think to myself every day in the studio if I, if I can expand that very literal spatial materialism uh, that things have space and, and, and exist in the round. If I can explore that with images, then I think we're really on to something. Right. And if I can explore that through surface, right? Because a lot of the, the, the tapestries in the show or the works in the show are about a surface, but also trying to literally mine that surface for that which is not seen, but is still present. Um, and and you're totally you're totally on those those images that were sold by way of media tell us one narrative or feed a, uh, feed a very obvious, easy narrative because it's been it's been fed mm-hmm. for, for decades, right? The challenge is to, to challenge, the challenge is to change that narrative or at least expose all of the aspects, all of the images that are associated with this experience so that we could all figure out what the f- is going on. You see what I'm saying, right? <laughs> and when you really, you, you see what I'm saying, when you really do that, you start to see the contradictions in all of it. You say, okay, well, wait a minute. Uh, you, you know, you could say you could if 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 I could break it down to something very literal, like if we could go back to the Malcolm X experience in the movie theater, I could say, OK, well, let's let's break that logic down. If the image that I've been sold thus far is of uh, 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 a savior that is white, blonde hair, blue eyed in some instances, not usually brown hair, very, you know, uh, uh, Max von Sydow type thing, you know, because Max von Sydow played Christ. And he was a badass, guys. I love that movie, you know, um, <laughs> right? But you know, um, if we could, if we could open literally, if we think open that surface, we could find some things behind that image. Also, around that image It's like, well, why did he have to be this figure? Why couldn't he be like five foot two and fat? You see that there are all these kinds of things that surround that image and questions that people don't even think about that I'm really interested in.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, and I, I. You know, I think I listened to the interview that you and Aaron did about your exhibition, and that is playing in the exhibition space. Um, So people Mm -hmm. that enter into the space can can see that as well. And I found it sort of fascinating or I found it very fascinating how you were talking about getting to by manipulating the image. You're actually getting more to the truth Mm. in some cases than keeping the image as what the image actually depicts. So like by pulling threads, by like your ebony images, like the untitled piece where you've got the waves and the way that the fabric is manipulated, the way it's hung, where you're not getting access to the image, that, that by manipulating the image, you're actually getting closer to the truth of what is happening there which i think is a fascinating mm-hmm. idea because you when you think of the word manipulation you think of the word being like fooled into something almost mm-hmm. like or tricked into something but mm-hmm. in this case you're actually being manipulated into the truth and the actual image does not really give you the whole story so if you could talk a little bit about that maybe around the piece, untitled itself, but you do it in a lot of your work. I mean, I think that that's a huge, you know, it's a key element to a lot of your work. But specifically right, think, that
1: piece, I think manipulation um, is. I think is a great word because <laughs> I think all peoples who are in less powerful positions must manipulate. That's the that's the thing, right? I think that because I think power must manipulate to stay powerful. However, I think those in the less powerful position or the non-powerful positions must manipulate doubly because we are the ones who have to get the power to, to change itself. I, I only say that in regards to say, um, uh, you know, I'm from the South, I'm not gonna disclose any secrets of black people, you know, but I'm gonna be honest with you, which I think everybody knows this secret. There's a way in which in slavery, uh, slaves were able to get things they needed to survive by manipulating the masters all right mm-hmm. an example would be you know uh and my father used to tell me this because he was born in 26 so he, he kind of had he, he kind of was at the vestige at the end of oh. that space and he would say you know when we worked on the trains because he when he when he came back from you no know, he was in high school he worked on unloading trains down at the docks uh at mobile alabama and he said when we unloaded those trains every now and then a chicken would fall off <laughs> or a big, he was like, every now and then a big pig would fall off. And, you know, you look at the, the the foreman who was always a white man, and say, oh, I'm sorry, sir. Well, what you fix to do it? I say, well, sh- just take it home to your family. Right. There was a way in which the system had to, impl- like, it, it, it had to be manipulated from within right. by those beneath. Right. And I think the same thing is happening in the work. I think if I can manipulate the surface as well as collapse the image, like you mentioned the untitled one that the museum so brilliantly it, and thankfully. Uh, acquired uh, it's draped so that you can't see the total image right and what that requires from the viewer that form of manipulation is one it, ch- it challenges their belief in their own power which they don't even realize they have right that the, the power that the viewer has and I am, I am implicit in it because I believe I have the same power is you no know, you're gonna give me the whole image <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna stretch that thing so I can see the whole thing so but the reality is that just ain't so because we nobody have that real sense of power even those who are the powerful don't have that power because they you know those who are in 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 the higher offices don't have eyes everywhere they just don't and there are things that get lost in the fold right there are shadow economies that exist that they don't even know about right and then all of a sudden you know 10 years down the line there's a there's a big like documentary be like, oh my God, can you believe this thing was happening in Brooklyn? Well, yeah, shit, I can believe it's been happening in Brooklyn for four <laughs> years. What you talking about, man? And if we really dig into it, we can like trace its history. So I think the the kind of tricks, you know, it's magic, the tricks that I'm trying to play in the space are, are essentially like pitfalls to get the viewer to realize things about themselves. That the power that they think they have, they don't really have, and they don't even recognize they have it sometimes, which, which is associated with the demand for total uh, availability, right? This image needs to be available to me now. I just think that's funny. <laughs> I like that too,
0: and I and I will say that I felt, in the best way, a little bit uncomfortable, a lot of the time, in in front of the work because, well, Aaron and I were specifically looking at the untitled piece, and if and you know our listeners don't necessarily have the piece right in front of them to look at. Sure, sure, But there on the left side, there is the guard
1: figure. And oh, the, what, let's go there. Let's I'm sorry. sorry yeah. to let's describe it. Right. So the image itself is uh, from uh, 67, 1967 Detroit riots, Detroit mm-hmm. protests, what we call them. Um, and what you see is. No, 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 not that. I'm sorry. That's not the image. The, the, the image is from 70. New Orleans Black Panther Party, now I remember, okay. And what you see is you, on the far left is a huge police officer and he is essentially, has a gun that's wobbling because the image is warped. And next to him is a long line receding into one point perspective of black men uh, in a lineup with their hands raised against a fence. At the other end, right, uh, at the end of that line, which is essentially the right side of the composition is a man with a camera. And he is photographing essentially, it looks like he's photographing the lineup which is to his left or our left. But what he's really photographing is the viewer. Mm. Yeah, it's, my, it's like La, Las Meninas, it's, it's, you know, it's like the Velazquez. So what, what really is going on in the image is you are implicitly involved in that space because you are being recorded from within the image. Mm. Mm. See? And all of that gets totally reduced or lost with, with the hanging so it's not stretched like a, like other works that I do that are like typical paintings on a stretcher but it's kind of like uh, for those who know the artist Sam Gilliam where he drapes his paintings uh, it's like that so that there are what five points of, of connection to the wall it drapes such that uh, it, it it echoes the structure of a crown mm-hmm. like a, the crown on but it also, has a bunch of wrinkles and folds so that all of the image gets lost in itself, right? And that, uh, and that in itself is, is, is the metaphor, right? Because if you think you have access, there's all these things you just don't see, you know? They just don't see. And even if I think, I think the brilliance for me of that piece, if I could say, is that um, even if I don't, as the viewer, have access to the totality of the image, I can fall in love and in awe with just form, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? The, the way the fabric folds, the way it falls down. You know, I can. I'm, I'm actually in my apartment right now, staring at uh, my laundry. You see, and there's a towel draped <laughs> over uh, over a chair. You, you know, um, and the and some of the folds in that tap or in that towel on this chair are just just damn beautiful, you know.
0: Well, and I know that that you have a love for abstraction too. And you, I mean, there are a couple of pieces in the show that are pretty abstract um, where you're not, where it's a lot more, you have to search for imagery more right. so than than others. I want to kind of, I think this is a good transition to the, one, the, the sort of the last facet of the show that I really wanted to talk about. And that's the way that you're manipulating the space and how you're, the conversations you're having with the viewer based on how the work is displayed in the space. Cause you mentioned untitled has that conversation with the viewer, but there's also, there are three pieces. Well, really four because you also have painted the walls, this sort of paint blue color, but mm-hmm. there are, there are these three specific pieces, Molotov, Molotov mm-hmm. uh, piece, the King slash, Z, 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 Um, and then finally the Haint Lens. Mm -hmm. And all three of these pieces have, in my view, having been at the exhibition, have a really interesting relationship to the gallery space that isn't just piece on the wall. So like if people see this image, these images just like straightforward, scrolling through Instagram or online or whatever, It's one thing. But in the space, I thought they really have this power. And it starts with Haint Lens, which is hanging on the edge of a wall between the entry room and the main gallery space. And why don't you go? It's better coming from you. Describe that piece. Yeah.
1: Great. It's in the door jam. Right, um, it's a it's, which essentially is a threshold, right? It's in the threshold when you transition to another space, right? And I remember uh doing a site visit and going to to, to Telfair and going into the slave quarters that are attached to the big house. And you know, I, I should have known, but I didn't, and I'm happy I didn't, but I'm happy I learned because I made myself available. You know, the folks at Telfair were like, no, this the, the paint on these walls because there was a particular kind of blue paint that was the vestiges traces are still there in the slave cat quarters, is haint blue, right? you would paint, they would paint haint blue, a specific kind of blue on the walls as a kind of protective element, protect from evil spirits and so on and so forth. Uh, I believe possibly, probably, uh, uh, no, I believe uh, brought over through the Middle Passage from West Africa. Right? So I thought, okay, well, how can I take this idea of haunting and ghosts, which is all about my work, my work is all about hauntings and ghosts, um, how could I take that and bring it to the space while also engaging, you know, allowing the viewer to understand that there are other spaces on this property that they could engage in and should engage? So, you know, we had the, uh, had the museum paint, paint blue all over the space, which I thought was pretty interesting because when you go in and you see these charged Im- images against this really gorgeous sky blue, it's, it's a whole nother animal, right? But that is the backdrop for the blue. Which then makes uh, the piece in the door jam so important, right? So that piece is a um, what is it? It's it's a police light, right? From like the '60s or '70s, right? So they used to have to instead of having a police spotlight on top of the car, it was plugged into a lighter, right? And then you could you could you could move it with your hand like a like a flashlight. And it's such a it's such an exposing object, which it not only expose it would expose for the police their quote unquote suspects, but it also exposed for me the crooked nature of authority, right? It's a kind of metaphor for the eye that watches us all. That object is encased in dirt that I found that I dug up in Harlem, right? Almost as if this object was buried in Harlem dirt. And then I came and kind of dug it up so that it can be positioned in the space. Now, what I I was hoping to do, I thought, well, I'll just just put it on a pedestal and that'll be it. But then reading this book about uh, Black folk beliefs, African-American folk beliefs, I found this amazing story and this belief that if you held an object, either reflective or incandescent in a doorway, right? In the jam of a doorway and stood slightly askew offside of it and stared to the side of the object through the doorway that you would see ghosts. I thought to myself that while you won't be able to see ghosts because I'm not quite sure that's very possible with the limited mental capacity of myself. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I thought, okay, well, this is a great metaphor for what I'm trying to do in this space. I'm trying to get the viewer to see the ghosts that haunt us. And the ghosts that haunt us are are in those images, but the images are just placeholders for all of those things that track us, right? Um, and it also was nice because, you know, it, it's, it's it adds a kind of charged physical oh, nature to the space that not not all the work does because some of the work is you know stretched and properly uh presented you know by which i mean framed hung at eye level that kind of thing this thing just comes out of the middle of nowhere you know and it has that cord that connects to the uh, the lighter in the car just 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 barely touching the floor oh it makes me so uneasy i just love it (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) you know what you know what so that that's how that works right it's calling on these kinds of spiritual uh spiritual black histories uh in a contemporary context right to make to make people really really uneasy but also try to figure out well, what the hell am I so uneasy about
0: it's about yeah I love that because it's like you're preparing to walk into the main gallery to you know see the like you just use the word proper like the proper show and like as soon as you're about to walk in you're like oh wait and it, like that, to me, that really caught me. And in fact, Aaron and I ended up kind of spending quite a bit of time in front of that piece. And the 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 police light is, it's almost lost in it. Like it, it's just barely emerging. And you mentioned the cord just barely touching the ground. There's also something that made me feel a little bit uncomfortable, which is there's a, a knot in the cord. Yep. And that bothers me. <laughs> it bothers right. me. But it's but that's, that's why it's strong though. That's why it's powerful because feels like it, it does disrupt that natural flow like that you would just like it makes you stop at the threshold turn towards it and like you just said I had no idea that backstory the, the folk backstory there but that's cool because you do end up engaging in exactly what you described inadvertently because you just look and you're gonna look at the piece but then also want to look into the gallery so you're looking at both spaces simultaneously that's really cool.
1: It really, right. it really disrupts your, I, I, wanna, I would hope that it disrupts the logic of seamless transition from, from space to space, from object to object, right? Because I try, I, I remember I was doing this with my students once when I, 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 I actually I still do this. Uh, one of the assignments I do with my students here at the uni- uh, university here in New York is I, I require them to go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, and I mean, I tell them, yeah, go look at some objects, but I, sometimes I'll say, go look at the surface of things and report back to me. And they're like, what? What do you mean the surface of things? I'm like, go look <laughs> at objects. Understand what the physical thing is actually doing to your retina. Like, try to get there, right? And then one of my, this is interesting, one of my assignments is go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and uh, recognize the sensation of transitioning from one room to the other. What does it feel like to go from the Greek wing to the oceanic and African wing? It's a different feeling. You, you feel like you're crossing into something else. It's a crossover, ah, pun intended, pun intended. Uh, <laughs> I want the viewer to really, I, you know, I want my viewers to, at least in this space, to acknowledge that you're crossing over, right? And that has everything to do with the ghost and the spirit world, because you're crossing over. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. As opposed to have a docile viewer who just goes from object to object and says, "This is interesting. This is interesting." I want an active viewer who says, "Wait a minute! Why the hell is that damn not there? <laughs> Did he lose his mind or something?" That's what I'm looking for: a conscientious viewer. Oh, that's if, cool. If we can prepare them before they go, if, if we can prepare them as they go in, then they'll be more heightened to to, to be aware for all the other uh, pitfalls that I'm trying to throw in the space. You know.
0: Well, it's interesting too because. That kind of is a good transition to the next piece I want to talk about here. And that's Molotov, because it's in a very small, like auxiliary gallery, basically, that's next to the main gallery where your most of the most of your show is. And when you approach it, because of where it's positioned, the piece is a police barricade that's been deconstructed in some ways, hanging on the wall. And on one side is basically you only see police barricade mm-hmm. on the other side. You see the bottle of Andre cold duck and mm-hmm. then an actual taxidermy duck about above the, the bottle, but it's not necessarily that you're seeing both of those things at the same time. So when you approach, you're on one side of the barricade and when you are on the inside the gallery, you're kind of on the other side of the barricade. So talk a little bit about that because I thought that was a really interesting decision. And it's not like necessarily that piece is gonna be on the postcard, but I found that piece to be really powerful because of the way that it was positioned within the in the museum.
1: Okay, yeah, sorry, a little delay, there we go. So let's talk about uh, Molotov, yeah. Um, the Mol- Molotov is, is nice one because um, of how it comes, how it came about. So there, I think there are a few, a few artists that I really love who are pretty brilliant with how they utilize language to uh, develop ideas and objects. Um, I think David Hammons is one of them. And for me, I was, I, I literally, I get stupid with it, man. You know, I get stupid <laughs> with words because words are stupid, and it, it, the logic is very simple for me. I had this thing. I was thinking, okay, I have this police barricade uh what what is the contradiction what is the the opposition to the police barricade well looking through all these images from the 60s 70s and so on and so forth i thought well the molotov cocktail is one well how does one make a molotov well you have a bottle and you put some 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 fiery liquid in it you know that's that fire music but then i thought okay well what kind of bottles did i grow up with i grew up with cold duck well cold duck is really about death because when you're cold you're dead but oh, that's a dead duck, he a cold duck. You see what I'm saying? So I thought, okay, well, let me figure out what kind of oppositional force I can position against this barricade, which really was a literal attempt or attempted literalness with the cold duck bottle of, uh, of alcohol emptied, right? And then put the real cold duck with it, right? So it kind of doubled down on death. And I thought the barricade was brilliant because what, bar- what, bar- what the police barricade tries to do is censor. It keeps you out. Right, it keeps people away from so the supposed crime. So for me, it worked. It worked on that way because I thought, okay, well, when you when you come around that corner, you're going to see this 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 one tone of blue against another tone mm-hmm, of blue, mm-hmm. right? So the the blue barricade against the light blue wall. But you know, you get around a little bit more, and the the foot of that bottle just sticks itself out. Right. Uh huh. That's the tease, right? And if you're really into it, you go around and say, holy sh! So then let's let's go there spatially. Right. If we were to go back to what we were saying about, for me, images are objects and objects are spatial. Well, all of a sudden you've entered the image of the barricade. You've gone around the barricade into its object form. Does that, you know what I'm saying?
2: Mm-hmm. And Once
1: you're inside the image, you see what, what I think is really in the image, which is that trauma, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting object that that attempts to represent or at least present a kind of metaphor of what it means to be inside the image.
0: Mm, i love that that it's funny because aaron and i were talking and i and those kind of works you know as an artist myself those kind of works just blow my mind because i'm like how does this guy take this bottle of uh of of booze and a dead Mm. duck and a police barricade and make something so powerful out of it like i can't i can't come to that place so I, i was really i mean i know this is a little bit of an aside, but I, that piece really blew my mind. I will say that it was really like one of those things that just kind of like, I appreciate and I that. like the humor in it though. I like how you've got a little bit of a tongue in cheek sort of humor to it too, because I think that's a, a nice little it's thing. Necessary.
1: It's yeah. necessary though, you know, it's like uh, my favorite philosophers are comedians, and Richard Pryor is the greatest comedian of all time. Richard Pryor, mate, you know, Richard Pryor makes makes, not made, makes makes us deal with things we'd rather not deal with, but he does it with humor. Mm, you know? mm. you know, and I'm trying to do the same thing, I think. Well,
0: then I think this is the perfect sort of ending to our conversation here. I want to talk about one other piece, and that's, that's your King slash ZZZ piece, the juxtaposition between Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Rodney King. Mm-hmm. And I love the, because it's in its position right, directly across from the bathroom exit. And mm-hmm. I can totally envision somebody going and looking for the bathroom. And they're like going around, they go to the bathroom, they come out and then they're just like, boom, they mm-hmm. have to confront this image. And for the viewers out there, you took a pretty iconic image of Rodney King. Cause I remember that video, the video mm-hmm. interview, the still from which you've taken that because And Aaron and I were talking about this. It was a weird angle, the way that they interviewed him. Like, it was kind of at, like, above a little bit and, like, looking down on him in a way. Which, ordinarily you would interview somebody and they'd be straight on and you'd have a conversation with him. But the way that he was, that, 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 so that image always stuck in my head. And combining it with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., is very disquieting so if you could talk about that piece and your decision to place it right outside the bathroom where people are going to be forced to confront that i would i would appreciate it
1: yeah sure sure um so I, a little a little history right i used to i started making tapestries uh what are we in 21 11 years no 12 years ago and one of my first tapestries was uh, a photo composite of Martin Luther King Jr. and the two Kennedy brothers who were slain in the 60s. Uh, so what I did was I, in Photoshop, I, I, I merged those three images to make this really weird kind of doo-wop singer. It was very bizarre because I, I kept the Kennedy hair, but, but maintained the kind of structure of Martin Luther King Jr.'s face. Mm. Then I sent that to an age progression company and they age progressed the image for me. Um, and then I, I then I sent it to my weavers and they wove it and I, at that time I was trying to make because my father had passed away uh, a year before and I was I didn't realize it but at the time but years later I realized I was trying to make these kind of faux father figures mm. um, I think it was probably a way of grappling with some things um, and then I took that idea and went to a dark space I was like okay what is, what is it? Because I was watching all these documentaries about Warhol and I was like, yeah, this dude's not a good person. Um, <laughs> how, did, how did, like, if, if Warhol didn't have art, what else would he have had? And I was like, well, I was watching these other, in the studio, I was listening to these documentaries about serial killers who are these white guys, like Son of Sam and that kind of thing. Well, I'm not quite sure he did it alone. Anyways, um, <laughs> and I would photo compose, I would like composite, you know, collapse these into these weavings of Warhol. It was one of them is, I still have it. It's Warhol meets uh, John Wayne Gacy. Very bizarre looking image. So it was like, it was like, it was, no, it was, no, I'm sorry. It was Warhol, John Wayne Gacy and Medgar Evers. It was very bizarre looking image. And then there was another one was uh, David Berker, which is the son of Sam, Elvis and Elvis. It was very bizarre. And I liked how charged and uneasy those images made me, the artist. So if it made me uneasy and I was dealing with it, then it was going to mess y'all up. (laughs) <laughs> um so then that became quite frankly that became the three portraits that are in the show right uh, of the composites of the police officer the, and the victim that the police officer killed uh and i thought how charged that was so i said okay well let's synthesize this experience with the kings because the whole show is about what kind of images and experiences are bracketed between these two these two crowns by which i mean king jr and rodney king and when I photo composited that image, it just did something terrible to me. I was in fits, I had to do it. Mm-hmm. And what it did to me was not only shocked me, right? It allowed me to recognize in an insanely weird way that the image itself didn't have the same kind of gravitas as the man himself did. I'll Say that again. That the image itself does not have the same kind of gravitas that the man or men themselves did. I say that because when I when I collapse these two black men together, people might say, "Oh, this is so offensive." King is this great King Jr. is this great figure, and Rodney King, while a sympathetic figure, is not King Jr. But still, that kind of irreverence for for those two images to collapse into that space was what it was about for me, right? And and to double down on that irreverence by putting it close to the bathroom. You know, my, my grandmother would have never put Jesus's picture next to the bathroom. Right. <laughs> and I thought, well, well shoot, I'll put Jesus' picture next to the bathroom, at least the Jesus that I'm aware of, which is King Jr. And what that does to people, I will hope, is they come out if they if they didn't see it when they went into the bathroom to relieve themselves when they come out that that whatever relief they they were able to attain in that that bathroom space, it gets doubly disrupted when they come out and see that figure staring at them in that hallway. Right. Um, it's a really charged image. It's a, it's a really charged image that I'm happy is in there and I'm hoping it really disrupts people's understanding or the stability that they seem to believe they have with these figures by way of images. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. It's such a powerful exhibition. I mean, We only talked about a few of the pieces within and um, and I am sorry to our listeners out there for not getting more uh, about it, but I encourage people to to check out the exhibition um, which is on view right now at the Jepson Center here in Savannah. Noel, I really appreciate you coming Absolutely. on. If, if people are interested in learning more about you and your work, you know, just kind of keeping up with what you're up to, not just in this exhibition, but beyond, what's the best way for people to sort of find out what you're up to, and what you're doing?
1: Sure, uh, thank you. Um, right now we're updating uh, the website with like a year and a half worth of, of projects. So that's going to take a while, but you can always find me on uh, Instagram. What am I? N.W. Anderson art uh, in Instagram. And I post stuff. Uh, I'm going to be better about it now. But I would also suggest that if you're able to see the work in person, it makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. Because the works themselves, my, my, my tapestry method of weaving, my French tapestry weavings are that they are all images that are woven. And if you see them on screen, you can immediately, yeah. you can, people usually say, oh, that's just printed on fabric. No, 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 no the thing is woven. The image is woven. Any thread that dis- gets disrupted or pulled totally uh, changes the image. Um, and there's a different kind of physical and spiritual energy when you go to the space and actually see what's happening uh, than if you just see it on screen. You know.
0: I wholeheartedly agree with that. I mean, I think that this is the kind of work you really, really need to see in person. And, and so hopefully people we will do that. And Aaron, we haven't even heard from you this whole interview. And I do apologize for that. But Aaron, I know also as well that you were the one who put this exhibition together. And you at the museum are going to be doing some a new program for contemporary art. And it would include exhibitions like this. If you want to really quickly go over that, I want to get that on the air here too to the folks out there listening.
2: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Rob. I haven't wanted to disrupt you and Noel because it's been such a fascinating conversation. And honestly, I still learn more about Noel's work every time (laughs) we talk about it because there are so many layers and contradictions and things to address. Um, Again, people should come to the space and really allow their boundaries to be pushed by so many of the elements that we've talked about today. And if anyone's going to be manipulating imagery and kind of forcing us to confront it, I want it to be someone like Noel, an artist, you know, who's really kind of... (laughs) That's the way I want to process the world, uh-huh, so
0: uh-huh.
2: I, yeah, again, I just encourage everyone to come out and check it out, um, and yeah, I'm just speaking to a new member group that's starting at the museum called Telfair Contemporaries, where we're going to be offering, you know, c- opportunities to meet with artists who are in town for exhibitions, meetups at art spaces around town. It's really going to be for anyone who's enthusiastic and interested in contemporary art, which, you know, we're continuing to expand and build upon that program every year, so you can find more about that on telpair.org.
0: Fantastic. Well, Noel, Aaron, both of you, I really appreciate your time today, and thank you so much for coming on Art on the Air. Thanks, Rob. We appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Rob. That's all the time we have for this week's episode of Art on the Air with your host, Rob Hessler. Listen every Wednesday for our live show, broadcasting from 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time on 107.5 FM, Savannah Soundings, and worldwide at WRUU.org. And you can catch past episodes on the WRUU Station Archives on our website, as well as on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. We'll talk to you next week, where we'll have another batch of art on the air.